I'm giving this sermon the Sunday after the inauguration, which was something of a holiday in the Miller household, you could say, as I'm sure it was for more than a few of you as well. I don't think it's a surprise to any of you that I feel like it's hard to come up with a less Christ-like person than the former occupant of the White House, and being done with him is just good news for me. Now, that shouldn't be confused with saying that Joe Biden is perfect by any stretch. One of the commonalities that we have to deal with in politicians is that there are a lot of promises that get thrown out at the start of a term and through a campaign, and some of those promises are kept, some are not, sometimes many are not. There's always some element with a president of asking yourself, how much do I trust this person? Do I think they're going to come through on these promises? Depending on the president, do I want them to come through on these promises? Meredith has mentioned before, and we're going to build on it a little bit together this week, a framework that her old college pastor, Ben Patterson, used to talk about prayer, that our prayer life stands on three characteristics of God, God's goodness, God's wisdom, and God's power. Does God care about what's good for me? Does God know (laughs) what's good for me? And is God actually able to do anything about it? I think those same three could be reframed around what it takes to trust a person. Going back to our politicians, if I'm going to decide to trust them, then first, I need to know about their goodness. What is their character like? When they promise something, to what degree are they telling me the truth? Second, I need to know about their wisdom. And I don't only mean, do they make wise decisions, but in the context of their promises, do they actually know how to make that promise a reality within a complicated governmental environment? (laughs) Donald Trump fails all three of these, by the way. But the third... There's the question of power. This might seem like a strange one, given that a president is literally the single most powerful human in the world, but it's there nonetheless. Some promises that presidential candidates make, it doesn't matter how good or wise the person is, they simply aren't powerful enough to make it happen at all. Bernie could promise Medicare for all, but a President Sanders would have a very limited ability to get a divided Senate to sign on, and like much of what Obama promised and wasn't able to deliver on, we see that... Much of the time, a president just doesn't have the power to make things happen on their own. So we kind of understand this concept. To trust someone, to trust that they will come through on their promises to us, we need to believe in their character, their goodness, we need to believe in their intelligence, their wisdom, and we need to believe in their power. And if I sense that any of those are lacking, well, I'm probably not going to get my hopes up very much. Last week, Meredith looked at how the Sermon on the Mount was, in part, Jesus making a sustained argument that God is like a good parent who desires to give us good things. In future weeks, we will see some of the many times that Matthew highlights Jesus' wisdom as he matches wits with the scribes and Pharisees and comes out on top. Jesus is good, Matthew wants us to see. Jesus is wise. Which brings us to chapters 8 and 9. There's a consistent theme in this section of Matthew, and it's power. Jesus has power over sickness, over the natural world, over the spiritual world, over, well, everything. My favorite of these stories is this one from Matthew 8, starting in verse 5. When he entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, appealing to him and saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed in terrible distress. And Jesus said to him, I will come and cure him. The centurion answered, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only speak the word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and the slave does it. When Jesus heard him, he was amazed and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, 
In no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and will eat with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the heirs of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you according to your faith. And the servant was healed in that hour. That is what trust in Jesus's power looks like. I'm not sure there's anyone who understands power quite like a soldier. I tell my men to go and they go. I tell them to do this and they do it. Period. I get the feeling this guy was like, look, Jesus, I don't know about all these arguments about Sabbath observance and whatnot that you keep having with the scribes, but I know how power works. Here you're on my turf. A centurion, by the way, would be roughly equivalent to a captain in our army, in charge of a hundred-ish soldiers, but with plenty of ranks above him as well. Now we know, of course, that Jesus would have been happy to come to the centurion's house, but his refusal of Jesus coming home with them is actually in the same vein as his words about and trust in Jesus's power. The centurion lives not just in a world of power, but in a world of honor where one of the ironclad rules was that you simply did not invite someone of higher status than you over to your house. It would be a slap across their face. You could not more clearly say, I think I'm your equal, maybe even better than you. And so the centurion is backpedaling fast when Jesus says, sure, I'll come right over. Because the centurion knows that if, say, his general got the impression that the centurion was inviting him over for dinner, let's just say the centurion's military career would be cut short. And so his reaction to Jesus shows that he understands this is not just any old rabbi. This is someone way higher in status than that. In other words, the centurion has faith, both in the sense of believing Jesus to be someone far above him in the societal pecking order, and in the sense of believing that Jesus has power to heal his servant. And then later on in chapter 8, there's a contrast to the faith of this centurion. Jesus and his disciples are in a boat, and starting in verse 24, it says, A windstorm arose on the sea, so great that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but Jesus was asleep. And they went and woke him up, saying, Lord, save us, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, you of little faith? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a dead calm. They were amazed, saying, What sort of man is this? that even the winds and the sea obey him. The centurion had great faith. There would have been no amazement on his part that when Jesus speaks, the things under his command listen. The disciples, despite leaving their families and following this strange rabbi, have little faith. Why? Because they don't actually trust his power. Whatever they think about Jesus intellectually, maybe they trust his goodness and his wisdom, but when push comes to shove, they aren't sure about his power. But if Jesus is the Son of God, then the same power that formed the sea with a word in Genesis could now speak to the sea in Matthew with the same effect. The sea obeys. N.T. Wright makes the point that in contrast to the Phoenicians and the Egyptians who sailed all over the Mediterranean trading with far-flung outposts, the Israelites were a mainly land-based people. They feared the sea, its power, its chaos, its unpredictability and danger, The sea symbolized, and we see this in the Bible often, the chaos and darkness that Yahweh had to overcome to create the good world. And that's why they respond the way they do. What sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Why, that would mean he's God. 
What sort of man is this whom we follow, Pomona Valley Church? Is he good? Is he wise? Is he powerful? Can we trust him? That's the question that the centurion had already answered, but the disciples, as we see, haven't quite answered yet. And so what Matthew saw, and hopes we see as well in chapters 8 and 9, is that Jesus has power over leprosy and sickness, both near and far. That Jesus has power over both the worst the natural world could throw at us and the worst that the spiritual world could throw at us. And in the climax of chapter 9, that Jesus has power over death itself. Jesus is not some sage dropping pearls of wisdom that we would do well to follow. He is not some mild, nice, good person whom we should imitate. Jesus, Matthew saw, is the son of the living God, embodying the goodness, wisdom, and power of God so that we might come to trust as the centurion did. Now, when we were together on the weekend, Meredith led us in a chance to read through these chapters of Matthew, chapters 8 and 9, and see where we find ourselves in these stories. There are so many characters, good characters, bad characters, mostly in between characters, characters that have faith and don't have faith, responding to Jesus and seeking out Jesus's power in any number of different situations, from sickness to oppression to death. And it gives us an opportunity to ask ourselves, who are we in these stories? What are we coming to Jesus asking for? Or what are we responding to what Jesus says and does with? So I would encourage you to do that yourself, to read chapters 8 and 9 of Matthew. Read all the stories there with an open mind and an open heart, listening to where the Holy Spirit might lead you and who you might identify with in those stories. We thought that could be a really fruitful exercise, and it's one that we engaged with together. So until next time, we hope you all are well. Bye.